0: Sometimes you have to be a high-riding bitch to survive. Sometimes, being a bitch is all the woman has to handle it to. It's the film flavors.
1: Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey, everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And this month, we are Kathy Bates fans, for sure, because we're bringing you more Stephen King-Kathy Bates combo. Right. Last week, we gave you Misery. <laughs> And this week, we give you pain. <laughs> no, this week, we're going to hobble you with Dolores Claiborne. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, when I wrote this document, I spelled Dolores the way I thought it would be spelled, like D-E-L, right? Yeah. And then I realized, no, it's Dolores. And in Spanish, Dolor means pain. Yeah. So, this means pains. Pains Claiborne. Oh. Oh. Yeah. A little on the nose, Steven. <laughs> Come on, Yeah, El. misery wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Dolores Claiborne is a 1995 American psychological thriller drama film directed by Taylor Hackford and starring Kathy Bates, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Christopher Plummer, and David Strathairn. The screenplay by Tony Gilroy is based on the 1992 novel of the same name by Stephen King. The film's score was written by Danny Elfman. The plot focuses on the strained relationship between a mother and her daughter, largely told through flashbacks after her daughter arrives to her remote hometown on a main island where her mother has been accused of murdering the elderly woman for whom she had long been a care provider and companion. Dolores Claiborne was
0: the second Major King adaption to star Bates in a leading role after Misery five years earlier. Kathy Bates stated in a retrospective interview that her performance as the titular Dolores was her favorite
1: performance she had ever given. Okay, listeners, sometimes being a bitch is all a woman has to hang on to. This is Dolores Claiborne. Dolores Claiborne, what the hell? Oh my God. She killed her. This is not a trial. This is a
0: preliminary inquest in all cases of death, as suspicious in nature.
1: Someone to see you here. I told you I don't want no lawyer. Dolores,
0: it's your daughter. When was your last visit?
1: 15 years ago. They didn't kill her.
0: They did not murder that which anymore and i'm wearing a diamond tiara we need a piece of your hair miss clavin
1: take what you want i ain't doing any beauty pageants this week that is the last guy in the world you want to make an enemy out of
0: motive money
1: i ain't making one i'm keeping one eyewitness testimony what is that supposed to mean a documented history of threats you're gonna tell me you don't remember him selena we met before miss uh, st george leave me alone i was the investigator when your father
0: died Maybe we should finish what was started
1: 20 years ago. You honest to God don't remember, do you? How
0: is that I remember you hitting him.
1: (laughs) You're an old hand at this, aren't
0: you, Miss Claiborne? People do have a tendency to take some bad falls when you're around.
1: What did you do to him, Mommy? Why can't you believe my mother? Because she's done it before. You don't believe me, do you? get in the house right now i am in the house
0: academy award winner cassie bates jennifer jason lee an accident dolores can be an unhappy woman's Dolores Claiborne, played by Kathy Bates, has been working as a housekeeper for Vera Donovan, played by Judy Parfitt, for 30 years in her mansion on Little Tall Island, Maine. But now Vera is an elderly invalid, relying on Dolores for more than just dusting. One day, after a struggle, Vera falls down the stairs and is injured near death. Dolores ransacks the kitchen and is caught by the mailman, who apparently just walks into houses, holding a rolling pin over Vera's head ready to hobble her. Before she can strike, Bira dies from her injuries, and the local police, believing Dolores to have killed her, begin a murder investigation. Dolores' daughter, Selena, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, isn't her number one fan, and they have been estranged for years. Selena, a successful journalist in New York City, in the days before email and cell phones, receives a cryptic fax of a news article about the investigation. She reluctantly travels to the island to support her mother, although she has serious doubts about her innocence. Dolores insists that she's innocent. However, the townsfolk don't really believe that. You see, Dolores was accused of killing her husband, Joe, played by David Strathairn, 18 years prior. And this really overzealous mainland investigator has had it out for her ever since, despite Joe's death seeming like a normal tragic, drunken, well-collapsing accident. In fact, Investigator Mackey, played by Christopher Blummer, has such a boner for seeing Dolores behind bars that he has turned to Little Tall Island to prove her guilty for this latest accident-slash-murder. Joe was an alcoholic-abusive husband, and Dolores saved the meager money she made working at Vera's for Selena's education. After Dolores deduces that Joe is molesting Selena, she attempts to withdraw the savings for their escape but her dick husband has stolen the money directly from the account. Distraught, Dolores confides her situation to Vera, who insinuates that she might just be responsible for her own husband's accidental death years earlier. That year, Little Tall Island is in the direct path of a total solar eclipse, and Vera has planned a grand party, but she insists that Dolores take the day off. That afternoon, Dolores plies Joe with whiskey, and tells him that she knows is a child rapist and a thief. Joe chases Dolores into the yard, but she heads towards the abandoned well she had recently discovered. Joe falls in, and his death is ruled an accident. The events destroy her relationship with Selena and create an enemy in Mackie. But she and Vera are bonded. The bond is so strong that Vera has made Dolores the sole beneficiary of her estate which Mackie finds very suspicious indeed, and he prepares to take the case before the grand jury. Selina attempts to leave before the court appearance, but has a recovered memory of her father molesting her on a ferry, and she raises back to save her mom, who has claimed her innocence by sharing that Vera asked her to kill her after the stairs fall. Mackie's making his case, but this seasoned detective is no match for a journalist with a fax machine and a drinking problem. Selina bursts into the room and uses words like circumstantial and argues that Vera and her mother loved each other despite their tumultuous relationship. Knowing when he's been hobbled, Maggie drops the charges and Dolores is free. Dolores and Selena share a tearful goodbye before Selena sails away on the ferry. Because <laughs> I'm dreaming <laughs> of, of you tonight. <laughs> Till tomorrow I'll be stabbing you tight (laughs) And there's nowhere
1: in the world
0: I'd rather be Than here in this room Even fills up
1: pills with me (laughs) I was really proud of that synopsis (laughs) Good job Thank you The one on Wikipedia was awful Loris Claiborne was released on March 25th, 1995 and grossed $5.7 million opening weekend, securing the number three spot at the box office. Other films in the top ten that weekend included Outbreak, Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh, Pulp Fiction, and Forrest Gump. Most of those movies are very good. Two of those movies are very good.
0: Yes. Excuse me. (laughs) Dolores Claiborne would go on to be a sleeper hit for Sony Pictures, just like Misery before it. That's right. It would remain in the top ten at the box office for four weeks, and would ultimately gross more than $46 million globally against a budget of only $13 million. I saw this in the theater. So this is much more of a sleeper hit slash phenomenon than Misery was.
1: Um, it certainly made a lot more money than I think people were expecting it to. Sure. Word of mouth. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when you, after a movie like Misery, when you have Kathy Bates and Stephen King, like both involved in a movie, like people were expecting, you know, the same kind of magic to happen. Sure. Doris Claiborne has an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes and a certified fresh. The audience score sits at 82%. The site's consensus reads, Post-Misery, Kathy Bates proves to be another wonderful conduit for Stephen King's novels in this patient Gradually terrifying thriller. Mm. I don't know that i would used the word terrifying. Janet Maslin of the New York Times called
0: it, quote, a vivid film that revolves around Miss Bates' powerhouse of a performance. Only after the film has carefully laid the groundwork for a story of old wounds and violent mishaps does the anticlimactic truth become apparent. Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four stars and praised the performances of Bates and Lee, saying, quote, this is a horror story, all right, but not a supernatural one. All of the elements come out of such everyday horrors as alcoholism,
1: wife beating, child abuse, and the sin of pride. Ooh. Entertainment Weekly, however, gave the film a negative review, awarding it a D plus rating and saying, This solemnly ludicrous psychological thriller is like one of Hollywood's old hag gothics, turned into a therapeutic grossathon. It's hush-hush, sweet Charlotte, for the age of Oprah. Whatever. <laughs> For real <laughs> it's though. It's not quite that gothic.
0: I don't know what people are calling it gothic,
1: do you? No. I've heard it's been called a gothic romance several times over.
0: Perhaps you' do understand.
1: <laughs> you know, I mean, but yeah, I like when I think gothic romance, I think something like Wuthering Heights, right? Mm. You know? I can see some gothic elements in this involving like patches of land or something. I don't know. The Moors of Maine, whatever. But yeah, I don't, I don't really agree with that. It did get some
0: accolades, or at least it was nominated for some accolades at the Saturn Awards. It was nominated for Best Actress, although it lost to Angela Bassett for *Strange Days*, uh, and Best Supporting Actress, but lost to Bonnie Hunt for *Jumanji*. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was also nominated for Best Music, but lost to um, *The Usual Suspects*.
1: Yeah, didn't win anything.
0: What what. Also,
1: wasn't nominated for
0: much more than at the Saturn Awards. Nothing, yeah, and it's strange to me because it's there's so much contention over its horror cred. You know that uh, certainly that's the only thing that I can think of. It would be at the Saturn Awards. Yeah. You know, um, I'm kind of surprised that it wasn't up for um, some, a- at least for some, best adaptation or
1: acting cred at the ac- at the Academy Awards. I think that's kind of famously snubbed, right? I think people were expecting something. I mean, when you look at the performances in this movie and you look at the cast, right? Like I feel like people were expecting some nominations to come out of this and it got zero. Yeah. So, I think I remember that. Hmm? I think
0: I remember the news talking about it being snubbed in nominations. I mean, when I saw this
1: movie in the theater back when I was a little like 16-year-old boy, you know, I thought for sure that year at the Oscars that it would be nominated for at least best actress. For Kathy Bates. Even though I feel like, you know, the rest of the cast probably deserves some accolades as well. At least, yeah. Yeah. But the script is good.
0: So, I mean, that too. Yeah. But, I mean, this cast is pretty incredible. Yeah, We're just like looking at, you know, thinking of this as really just like a piece of Kathy Bates and Jennifer Jason Leigh. Of course. But forgetting completely who the actress was that played Vera. And then, of course, not knowing that Christopher Plummer... Or David Strathairn, um, or John C. Riley, or even Eric Bogosian is in this. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's quite the lineup.
1: There is. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about Kathy Bates in our last episode from Misery, right? And of course, like just in this movie as she is in everything, she's usually really fucking phenomenal in the roles that she plays, right? Like, she's she's a very, very, very good actress. So, I'm not surprised at her turn in this. Right. And she had just broken out,
0: like, five years pri- previous to this in Misery. And I think the year after this, or the year, two years after this, she was in Titanic. Mm-hmm. And then she was up for another Oscar for Primary Colors. Of yeah. course, she was famously in Waterboy. And then, of course, AHS all over the place. Yeah. Many, many seasons of that. So, this role, theoretically, as we talked about last week, was written with Kathy Bates in mind. By Stephen King. Yes.
1: Yeah. So after he saw her in Misery and was sort of writing Dolores Claiborne, um, which came out, you know, roughly like ten years after Misery did the novel. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> he had said that he when he was writing this character, I'm sure that Stephen King thinks about adaptations of his work sort of as he's writing them. He's just that kind of author at this point. And he has said that he sort of like was picturing Kathy Bates in his head as he was writing this novel. So Yeah, and how interesting and, and cool is that. And that's how I was thinking
0: about it last week until I watched this movie. <laughs> because all over this movie is calling her ugly, you know? Yeah. And like like, oh, you fucking looker, you know, or whatever. And I'm just like, wow, um, <laughs> If that was like straight up lifted from the novel, you know. Either way, screenwriter, whatever, what have you, and it's written with Kathy Bates in mind. Yeah,
1: that's a little depressing. So I don't know how I feel about that. I'm trying to think back. I mean, so I read this novel like pretty shortly after it was released. So I mean, maybe a couple years after the book came out, I read it. I I certainly read it before I saw the movie. Um, and thinking back, like when he describes the character of Dolores in the novel, it's oftentimes like calling her stout, you know. And kind of burly and things like that. Like, it's not, it's not a, a, a good description, you know?
0: Yeah. Certainly not a looker, but. It seems like how Stephen King kind of sees her.
1: But this is one of my favorite Stephen King characters out of any novel. Yeah. Like, I, I the way this novel is written, like, I, I really, really do love this book quite a bit. I've only read it like two or three times. But, like, the dialogue that he writes for her, Right in the novel is so good. And like just the character itself is, is amazing. It's a, it's a really like retrospective and introspective kind of woman. And the way that the book is written is much different than the way the movie is filmed, right? A lot of it literally is her telling the story, you know? So it's, it's not quite like epistolary or anything like that, but it's literally her telling the story from a, a narrative standpoint.
0: And she does a good job, but, I almost want to say like she doesn't have as much to do here, like acting wise than like say misery, for instance. Like, I think she has it's way more to do in misery than here.
1: just as a relative example. To I think bear contrast physically, she has more to do in misery than she does in this, right? but i I feel like this is a a much more quiet, much more it is. Vocal Can she be
0: the center of a movie? you know, and I think that she proves that in spades here. I think so, too. She certainly maintains a good accent. But, you know, there's lots of performances like that, mm-hmm. you know? And so I almost feel like the call-out performances from my point of view is Jennifer Jason Leigh and really far and away, Judy Parfit. Judy Parfit, for sure.
1: Judy Parfit in this yeah. movie is just fucking amazing.
0: And I didn't expect that. I, I came into this movie really expecting Kathy Bates and maybe some Jennifer Jason Leigh. I'm still kind of on the fence with Jennifer Jason Leigh's performance, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but Judy Parfit just like hands down won it for me you yeah. know it's just like who is this woman and why haven't I seen her before or since
1: I know I mean I feel like she's more of a British actress right
0: yeah for stage right and mm-hmm. so and that's basically what she was she was kind of like um, a breakout for this role uh, since then she's been in things like the girl with the pearl earring you know she's on the British TV show or she was at least um, called uh, Call The midwife so I've seen a couple of episodes of that. I have not. Yeah, but she's just never really kicked off in American cinema, at least. And uh, she's been in quite a few movies, but just nothing that really is the super mainstream. Well,
1: nothing that I can really remember,
0: either. Right. And so I just remember her acting as, you know, her younger self. And then her transition from, like, bitch to actually, like, helpful confidence, and then transition into old age and decrepitude was super believable and masterful and hard to do and pull off in such jarring flashbacks sometimes.
1: Yep. Well, and that's the thing is that I feel like Judy Parfitt in this movie is just amazing. And I feel that Kathy Bates succeeds in this movie, in her performance, just because of the, the people supporting her for sure. Of right. course. I think Jennifer Jason Lee is always good. Oh, she's always good, yeah. <clears throat> Um, and and this movie is no exception, but Judy Parfit really like does more than just like add you know as, as a scene partner for Kathy Bates like she sort of pushes the story along too like her character is kind of integral to everything that happens.
0: She's the rich bitch and she's a nightmare, and then she turns into that surprising, you know, partner in crime in a way.
1: Yeah. And well, and then she never really drops the rich bitch kind of like mentality, yeah. you know. But Kathy that's, Bates that's gives it is. right back
0: to her. You she know? does. Which eventually. Yeah. So they had a really, really good charisma, you know. Um, you know, and I think the the chemistry was even better between Kathy Kathy Bates and Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, regardless of Jennifer Jason Leigh's performance standing up to Judy Parfitt's, I think everyone did a, an amazing performance in this movie. I just wanted to say, of all these people, I would have loved to see win an Oscar for their like their first time, you know, major screen role would have been Judy Parfitt, you know.
1: And her screen time is so limited in this movie; yeah. it's not a lot, you know. And like, I love it in the Oscars when people who are barely in the movie sort of like steal the show. Was well, like Anthony Hopkins for like nine minutes or something? Yeah, something ridiculous like yeah. that. And then like Judy Dench, even less you know. Yeah. And like but Judy Parfitt in this like just the way that she delivers some of these lines is just amazing to see her talk to her like the the the, the scene that they share together when Dolores kind of breaks down and and you know, it's not even like telling her everything, but Judy Parfitt knows. She's been yeah. through all this before, right? Vera Donovan, her character. Yes. And she she's trying to get answers and she has to be as blunt as possible. And so she's like, Dolores has he fucked her? Yeah. You know what I mean? And I was just like, oh, like, you know, I, as many times as I've seen this movie or read the book, I'm always taken aback by like the bluntness of that character. She's trying to kind got of to snap her out of it yeah and start thinking about it logically. So she
0: can yeah. start doing things
1: about it. Right. Stop crying about it and look at the like reality of the situation, Make you know? Plan. Yeah, exactly and she helped her with that plan. it was
0: like they were Thelma and Louis separated by one generation I love you it know.
1: you know yeah and I, I don't, the, the scenes when she is elderly and Dolores is really taking care of her right where she's like screaming out for that china pig and shit I mean like it's just china an amazing pig. performance she's like I want my china pig where's my cake Bedelia <laughs> you know yes. but like it's just really really good I really love Judy Parfit in this movie well, what's funny is like in any movie with Christopher
0: Plummer, you expect Christopher Plummer to be kind of like the Shakespearean, you know, standout. He's stately, you know. Um, you know, he played detective John Mackey, and of course, he's famously was in *Sound of Music* as Captain Von Trapp, mm-hmm. um, way back in the day. And of
1: course, Wolf's recently in *Knives Out*. He was recently From nominated Captain for an Academy Award too for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, now, he's dead now. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I mean, recently within the last several years. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: I've always enjoyed Christopher Plummer. He does a, such a good job here. And we've got some uh, anecdotes about him and his performance coming up. Okay. But he's always a pleasure to see. And then, of course, David Strait is one of those uh, actors that you can place but don't know maybe exactly where they're from. I remember seeing him more, most recently in Nomadland.
1: Yeah, you're right, because I was thinking and I didn't I didn't bother to look it up just because I know who he is, yeah. you know, like, but if you were to ask me to rattle off movies that he's been in oh, a bunch of stuff in the 90s. And, yeah. Yeah. Right. But I probably couldn't like come out the top of my head. But he, it, there was a point where it seemed like he was in everything, but he's a really good character actor. Right? Yeah. And I'd seen Eric Bogosian as well. And of
0: course, he plays the um, the public or not the publisher. Yeah. Publisher, I guess. Or the or editor. Editor. Yeah. Of the newspaper that Jennifer Jason Lee's character, Selena, works at. But Eric Bogosian, of course, recently was in Interview with the Vampire TV sh- uh, series as the older Daniel. You know, and I've seen in a bunch of the other things too. You know, he's pretty recognizable. I just like his name. Eric Bogosian? Bogosian. Yeah. And then of course the the irreplaceable, <laughs> lovable,
1: adorable, John C. Riley. Oh. That's uh, Constable Frank Stamshaw. I I call him irreplaceable, but he's certainly goofy. You know what I mean? I I always like him when I see him. I mean, I I find him very endearing. I think it's, A, the way his face looks, number one. I kind of want to just give him a hug. And he's always just so, like, every man goofy. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I was just thinking,
0: actually, there's one role that I wish he hadn't been in, and that was, uh, I think he was playing opposite. He was married to Tilda Swinton, and we need to talk about Kevin. And I felt
1: like yeah, he didn't really play a good wife to Tilda Swinton. Well, he was barely in that movie too, right? I don't know. Every time I think about John C. Reilly, I think about Boogie Nights because I really, really like Boogie Nights. Okay. So, but I totally forgot that he was in this movie completely. Totally. And he's a really good character. I like him. Yeah. I mean, because he eventually like comes full circle and stands up for people or what he believes in, right? And he's constantly being belittled by, you know, a, a bigger city investigator yeah who's clearly is just out to you know get this woman accused and convicted of murder when there's no case for that. Yeah. So I don't know. But I, I do like John C. Riley and he he's he's good in this movie. Agreed.
0: So this is an excellent cast. Although like I said earlier the on screen chemistry of Kathy Bates and Jennifer Jason Lee just really, really works and it has to because it's kind of the emotional center of this movie. It's what connects us. Their relationship is what connects us with the past, the present, and kind of the future. Mm-hmm. In, within the narrative of this film, director Taylor Hackford talked about um, you know, how they got into sync. And he said, quote, not at the beginning. Both are really experienced. Kathy is one generation away from Jennifer and therefore had a lot of stage experience before. Remember, though, Jennifer started working as a young girl. She comes from a movie family. I think her first film was when she was 15. She's had a lot of experience also. They did have different styles, but they both understood, like any good actor, that you don't do a scene alone. We did rehearse a bit. It took a little time for them to find the dance step and get the rhythm right. They do have different styles, but it wasn't at all unusual for me to see Kathy standing behind the camera, giving Jennifer off-camera lines and crying. Each of them was so touched by the other. They don't have to, they don't have to do this, but they were totally committed to each other.
1: I like that. I mean, just because last week we were talking about how Kathy Bates and James Conn were preparing for their roles, right? And James right. Khan is not a rehearser, apparently, and Kathy Bates is. Exactly. And then she used it.
0: And then later, like they said, they, were, they had some contention, certainly the beginning of filming. I don't know they, they when they made up, if it was during filming or near the end or mm-hmm. afterwards, but they remained friendly for the rest of their lives as far as I know. And if you watch Kathy Bates Academy Awards speech, she – called him Jimmy Conn and said, I really am your number one fan. Good.
1: Cool. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad that they were able to like build that kind of relationship. And I should hope that Kathy Bates and Jennifer Jason Lee are also still kind of friendly just because they work so well together in this movie. Yeah. Right? And I
0: think they were both
1: stood up. Um, as performances that complemented each other, you know? Well, and it's really good when you see two actresses that are able to work together and make it just look completely effortless, right? And I think some of that has to do with just how good you are at the craft, but also a part of it has to do with how well you work with the other person, you know? And um, I feel like both of these roles are kind of pivotal. And maybe if we're talking about the reason why people weren't nominated for Academy Awards, like, who do you call the lead actress in this movie? Really? Really? Kathy I mean <laughs> I mean Kathy Bates by name recognition and I guess like the like titular character, but I feel like Jennifer Jason Lee has a lot of screen time in she this. She does. You could put up the, the studio is the people that would decide.
0: Right. Right. Like which one they would put her up for. And in this case, if they were ever gonna like and maybe in this case they didn't, you know, they didn't put either up, they didn't do or didn't or even have the money to do a campaign for Oscars or anything. But, mm-hmm. you know, they, I think they would have put up Kathy for best uh, best actress and probably Denver um, Jason Lee as the supporting.
1: I should hope that they would also put some support behind Judy Parfit for best supporting actress. but Best supporting, for sure. And she would have had a shoe in. I mean, 1995 was a big year when it came to like award season. And I think by the time. Movies had come out, you know, like it was clear what was going to happen that year. And this is not the only Stephen King drama that came out in 1995, right? I mean, like by when everything was all said and done, it looked like a race between like Shawshank Redemption and Forrest Gump.
0: And I love that in this in this movie, um,
1: you know, they do actually mention Shawshank. They do they mention threaten, Shawshank. They threaten one another. The Kathy Bates and her husband mm-hmm. with Shawshank. You has to spend time in Shawshank. Yeah, I love that. I love a good Stephen King reference because it's all throughout his novels. It's like the MCU. <laughs> yeah. you. Can, it's easy to do in his, his like written yeah. work. Right. But like for people who are Stephen King fans and have read his novels and seen his movies. Right. Like I love, I love a good call out to other things. And Shawshank is all over his books. He just mentions it all the time. Yeah. So I'm always happy when it makes its way into a screenplay as well. Awesome. But yeah, I, I really think that their, their chemistry was great. And and fully believable. And I think like last week we talked about like other actresses and actors that were up for those particular roles and whether or not we could see them in it. Right. And this one, I just don't know of anyone else who would play Dolores Claywater other than Kathy Bates, like fully. And obviously another is Stevie. Yeah. Especially since it was written for her. Right. Yeah. So I mean, like Taylor made, but like Jennifer Jason Leigh in this movie was, was really, really good. And their chemistry proves it. And I, I can't see anyone else playing that role, honestly. And
0: I don't know if it's whether like her performance here, I, I like her much more as an actress, as an older actress in, in, to me. Um, younger, she just had a way about her that just seemed kind of petulant in a okay. way that kind of grinds my gears.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I guess. It's part know, of I, the character, too. So it's just like, I don't know. She should be. But I mean, like, uh, to the character for sure. But. I don't know. So, I mean, like, right around this time period. You pimp. <laughs> we <would> have, <laughs> we've already talked about Jennifer Jason Leigh on a bonus episode of the podcast when we did Single White Female. Oh, yeah. You know? She and played so, little
0: psycho when she was young.
1: Yeah. And I, I feel like you're correct. I think that the older that she gets, the better she is at being an actress. And there was a period of time where I just didn't see Jennifer Jason Leigh at all. And now I see Jennifer Jason Leigh all over the place. Yeah. Right. And she's just excellent in all the work that she's doing now. Back in the day, back in the 90s, mid- early to mid 90s, some of her performances were very, very similar. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, well, she came up in that time. You know,
0: she fast times at Ridgemont High, but then she really segued into a bunch of eclectic stuff. Flesh plus blood. Uh-huh. We did over on Patreon, right? Yep. That's right. Uh, backdraft. Um, single white female. We did over on Patreon. Or do we do a deep dive?
1: No, that was a Patreon episode. Patreon.
0: Uh, Hateful Eight, which we might eventually do. Yep. She was amazing in that. She She should have won five Oscars for that. Annihilation, which we did a deep dive of. That's right. And eventually we might cover Possessor. I don't know.
1: Well, we're doing Backdraft this year, maybe. And it's a possible docket entry. So, I mean, by the time that you know all is said and done with this year and for the future of the film flamers we could have talked about jennifer jason lee many many times yeah and we already have a little bit <clears throat> that's right so i mean you're right like the the work that she chooses to do is Three very we've already kind of covered yeah i know so for i mean now. she just pops up in things right but she's
0: excellent she does always excellent. So. I do want to segue a little bit and talk about director Taylor Hackford. Because I it's it's a name you kind of recognize, but it's not quite household. You know, certainly not mm-hmm. on, on the level, you know. And so uh, he started off w- with a, a short film and he won Best Short Film Oscar in 1979 for something called Teenage Father. Okay. And then he directed An Officer and a Gentleman in 1982, which was a
1: surprise breakout hit with Richard Gere. That was a, a huge, huge box office hit. And I feel... Oscar winner as well. I've never seen it. Really? Yeah. Deborah Winger? Yeah. And I completely forgot that he'd done The Devil's Advocate, which I think we also cover on Patreon at some point. So this is what I can't remember. I'm glad that we're talking about Taylor Hackford and I'm glad that you said what you said about him because that is a name that I recognize. And I was like, oh, Taylor Hackford directed this. And then I was sitting there watching and I was like, but what else, though? You know, and so I looked it up and I was like, oh, Devil's Advocate. And so I was straining my brain to think of whether or not we talked about that on the podcast or just like threatened to at some point. I think of Dolores Claiborne as
0: like a timeless piece, you know, and then I think of Devil's Advocate as very fairly modern. And those are only two years apart.
1: Right. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't remember if we talked about it. I, I think you and I watched it within the last five years though. Yeah, we did. We, at least we watched, watched it when
0: I was in it. Boston, I think.
1: Yeah. But 2020 <laughs> for the life of me, I could not remember what this man had directed. And when I looked at his filmography, that was the thing that popped out. I was like, Oh yeah, I know Taylor Hackford from devil's advocate. And I was like, but do I like, I mean, I know the name, but mm-hmm. I, again, just like, talking about David Strayer's movies, I was like I couldn't list off his fucking filmography. And then Proof of Life in 2000, which with Russell Crowe like a terrorist
0: movie or a hostage Oh, with
1: Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan, yes. I haven't
0: seen that. Yeah, I saw it in the theater. Oh. Yeah, I don't really remember. It. And then Ray, famously, which was nominated for best picture and best director didn't win the Oscars, but uh and since then he's just done a bunch of stuff I don't really
1: recognize, but um yeah. Wasn't Proof of Life the movie that caused Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid to divorce? Ray, it was 20 years ago. <laughs> That's crazy. I don't even want to think about it. I don't that, know. Um, Meg Ryan and who? Dennis Quaid? Mm-hmm. Why? I mean, they, they, they divorced because there was like possible infidelity of her on set. And I can't remember if it's Proof of Life or something else. Perhaps. Do you think it was with Russell Crowe? Perhaps. The, the Crow? I um. mean... Dennis Quaid
0: looks great, and both of them look like shit. So,
1: for real though, I mean, Perfect. if you look at them now, please. And Dennis Quaid has always looked good. Like, His son is
0: doing some great shit too. Mm-hmm. Like he's in um, the Boys, and he's in Star Trek and stuff. And either way, Dennis Quaid, if you're listening, the rest of them went the way of Randy Quaid. <laughs> <laughs> I think Meg Ryan was was like like broke back, back out into something recently
1: uh yeah she was in some movie i feel like she at, looks like a brat doll yeah i feel like at this point she should just stop trying like i don't think anyone really cares anymore jennifer jason lee has staged a huge multi-year comeback on both television and film and meg ryan is making a movie that i can't remember the name of or the year that it came out
0: yeah so oh yeah. wow well wow. Uh... Uh, he was also the former president of the DGA, or the Director's Guild of America, for um, many, many years, I believe, in the 90s. It seems like a really prestigious then, title, too. So. That, yeah. I mean, they have their
1: own awards and everything, right? hmm I mean, it's a huge details. precursor to the Oscars. So, obviously, this man knows how to make a good movie. And I feel like this one is no exception. I mean, Officer and a Gentleman is, is very, very good. Devil's Advocate is a, a great movie. Like, I always have fun when I watch it, right? Ray was really good. I haven't seen Proof of Life. One thing is I feel like
0: he's he's maybe more of even like an actor's director I don't know, because it feels like all of his movies look and feel differently. But he does stylize them all in their own way. And so I noticed that while the cinematography was by Gabriel um, Beristain, he – also has a hand in just making all of his projects look pretty unique and of themselves and doesn't have like a signature style, like say like Michael Bay or something would, you know what I mean? Right. So like I noticed that um, there was a blue filter over everything in the present, right? Mm-hmm. That's pretty easy to, you know, hard to miss. I don't know if people are paying attention to the palette of the movie, but every time that we would go back in time, it would be orange, right? Mm-hmm. It would be a lot more nostalgic looking and, um, you know, and, um, you know, warmth and, and, and almost positive, but also kind of tinged and sickly in a way. Right. And so, um, what, what meets the mill is that eclipse anything before that eclipse is in blue, everything after it is an orange, Sorry, everything after it is blue, everything before it is orange. Yeah. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And so it's like it had a language. You always know what point in time you're looking at. And they didn't have to do much magic with cutting or makeup or things like that when they're really just giving the 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 measles sin or whatever the itself <laughs> a palette
1: so obvious, but still so naturalistic looking. Yeah, I feel like some of the transitions between, you know, present day and flashback are kind of awkward in moments but like it's clear what you're looking at you know what i mean you know if someone is having some sort of like memory placed in like the present day cuz even like some of the things like somebody from the past at a flashback would walk into a present day moment but the color would be different. The color would match yep. the flashback moment. And I thought that was really, really good. And you always know exactly what's happening in that regard. And so exactly. That very, very smartly done. It doesn't take a whole lot of like any kind of explanation other than just the way it looks. And they set that up right. really early in the movie with that very first flashback where Dolores gets like abused by her husband in the kitchen. Right? Yeah. Some of it's really jarring and kind of masturbatory a
0: little bit, which is why it suffered in my rating a little bit, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But um, for the most part, this was very, very smartly and excellently and artistically done.
1: I would agree like wholeheartedly. I feel like the way that it's shot, the way that it looks is really, really good. And I, I know that you like a movie that has good color symbolism, right? Yeah. And I don't
0: even – yeah, I don't know if it's like straight up symbolism so much as just like – It's is a device. Trying to create a tone, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, director Taylor Hackford actually commented – on that style, so I was kind of validated when I read this after I'd, I'd written that down. And he said, "Quote: Although the acting is realistic, Dolores Claiborne is certainly more stylized. In fact, my production designer, Bruno Rubio, and I looked at a lot of Magritte's surrealist paintings, and even incorporated some of his imagery in the film. Like when Jennifer Jason Leigh looks in the bathroom mirror, and what she sees is the back of her head. I was trying to create a unique look in that film, where the narrative alternates between the present and the past." I had different looks for each and they had to reflect the psychological nature of Dolores In the present tense. We shot on Kodak, which naturally has a strong contrasty bluish feel to it. It's a little cold compared to Fuji. There was a film. I loved that Sven, uh, Nyquist had shot for Inmar Bergman, The Passion of Anna from 1969, in which almost all of the color had been stripped out, and I told my cinematographer, Gabriel Bernstein, that I wanted that look in Dolores Claiborne. So we used Kodak for all the contemporary sequences, then desaturated it like crazy and flashed it. But for the flashback scenes, when Dolores is 25 and hopeful, we used Fuji, which has a pastel look. It creates a kind of natural feeling of bliss. I did that all throughout the film. And that was so validating to read that because it was it was done uh, so well. And, of course, that mirror scene is probably one of the most horror movie-esque moments from the film.
1: And I think that th- that particular moment where she sees her the back of her head in her reflection as she's looking straight on like shows a lot about what the movie is about at its core, right? At least for its characters. And I know that we'll probably talk about that in a little bit she turned her right. back on herself I mean <laughs> but yeah it, it, it's one of the few horror moments I and aside from like the well scene really let's get some real life horror but yeah, yeah. I don't know. falls but,
0: in a well during an eclipse yeah <laughs> please I mean I'm terrified of that it happens to me almost daily pastels <laughs> <laughs> Debbie <laughs> uh i was shocked to see because i didn't even realize it during the credits or even like listening to the score while watching this movie uh but every time i do the notes for anything afterwards i always listen to score in isolation if it's there and this music is done by danny elfman which may be his most understated score ever There's almost no leitmotif here, no themes. It's just scored for the moments, and it's a really, really good score.
1: And it's not very bombastic, as I would think of Danny Elfman's score. So I love that fucking Mystery Science Theater 3000 quote from I don't even know what movie they were doing, but the score is like bumping along and. Crow or whatever is like Danny Elfman Danny Elfman this course sounds like (laughs) Danny Elfman and I'm like this is not doesn't sound like Danny Elfman at at all because I saw his name during the credits and I was just like oh and then so I was listening throughout the movie to see like what it sounded like and there were moments where I was like I just don't remember what it sounded like whatsoever no, not at all.
0: And of course, for those of you who don't know, you're not composer or nerds. Danny Elfman does most of Tim Burton movies mm-hmm. and he did uh, the original Spider-Man movies yeah. for Sam Raimi. Um, so like Beetlejuice and Batman and things like that for Tim Burton, you know, uh, and he's all over the place as well. So, yeah, he's just one, of one of the greats. My favorite horror scores of all time is Nightbreed. And he did that. Yes, he did. So do you want to talk about the themes a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of them in this movie, actually.
0: Yeah, at least two major ones, (laughs) which would be uh, repression and feminism. If you wanted to call it repression, you could also call it like abuse, you know, Uh, and really all of it kind of under like the the, uh, kind of like a a woman's story, you know, or a female story in general. But film theorist Kirsten Thompson identifies the film as a melodrama, quote, produced by the repression of specific traumas, in this case, domestic violence and incest. And according to Martha McCoy and Neil King, the film's use of flashbacks suggests a specific narrative point of view when considering the film's themes of abuse and incest between Dolores as well as Selena and Joe. Quote, that all the flashbacks save one belong to Dolores tells us that not only are we watching her story, it also tells us of the unavailability of the past to Selena and of the displacement and repression forced into play by the girl's experience of incest. And we see that all the time in the real world with like multiple personality
1: disorder and all this other stuff. Well, I mean, I just no there's no secret in this film that there's something in Selena's past that she can't remember or has not come to terms with. Or exactly. We see the ten thousand bottles of yeah, medicine.
0: Know, medicine that she's she's taking when she goes through weirdly goes through her daughter's first Mothers do that, I guess. The flashback scene in which Selena recalls her father forcing her to masturbate him on the ferry has been particularly noted by critics. Quote Here, Selena and the viewer alike come finally to see Joe's transgressions and by implication to understand the truth of Dolores's tale. Throughout this scene, the perspective offered by the camera remains firmly focused on the reactions of the victim of the sexual crime versus the perpetrator. Right? And so it very smartly stays on our character. You know, Joe is not the center of the story; he's just kind of a catalyst,
1: and he's the victim of his own story anyway. So, that particular flashback is the hardest one to watch in this movie. Like, I, I yeah, feel it's like so uncomfortable. It Fucking really, really so is so uncomfortable. I feel like we understand what kind of character Joe is early on in the film when he sort of beats Dolores over the back with that piece of wood, right? So bad that she has to sit there through dinner and she can't move, right? But we also understand Dolores' character a little bit in that particular flashback because she threatens her husband. Like you get so much in that particular moment for both these characters. You know that this has happened so many times that this is the one moment that she stands up to him. You know, she always has her trusty ax in her hand and shit like all throughout this movie. And it's almost kind of like her support blanket, right? Like she stood up to her husband finally with that ax. She's holding it even in present day. And we just learn everything we need to know for the rest of the film. When it comes to the moment that we realize that he's been sort of like molesting his daughter, not even sort of, he is molesting his daughter. Like it doesn't really come as a shock to me. He's he's a bad man, like every step of the way. Yeah. But I really like that. There's a, fo- there's a dual focus on the same character in that moment. It's one of the few flash flashbacks in this movie where the present day Selena is looking on. To the flashback. It yeah. cuts back and forth between the two of them, yeah. right? And they're right. They don't really show Joe's character at all. They show the reactions of both characters just at two different time periods. And I think that's super fucking interesting and a really good way to show repression. It also is interesting because it's also, I think, one of the only
0: flashbacks, if not the only flashback, to not be in that, like, kind of like that Sebea tone. Right. You know, because and Rightly So, it's probably, you know, of course, it's a different character. And that's an interesting question to me as well, which is like every time Dolores looks back, everything's kind of has that rosy glow, you know, Mm -hmm. like it was supposed to be a good time. And if you think about it, the present is a much better time in a way because she's not undergoing that abuse. She may have been out of touch with her daughter, but her daughter's back in town now. She's maybe going under this you know, murder thing, but doesn't seem to care. She's the heiress of millions of dollars, although her best friend just said, there's a mixed bag going on in the present, right? But it's not as dire as there's no like child abuse going on in this moment. And there's, you know, which really got me thinking is like, why is this blue? Why isn't the past blue, you know, with all that shit going on? Why isn't the present orange or whatever in comparison? And it's because of the past. It's almost like the past, you know, we're experiencing that fallout And the blue in the present is almost just post-apocalyptic. We're living through the, the repercussions of everything of the dead world,
1: you know, caused by all the events in the past. Well, I mean, ultimately, everything that Dolores does in her life or did in the past was for her daughter. Right. And so no matter what she was going through with her husband, no matter what her daughter was going through, if Dolores looks back that was the time that she actually had her daughter in her life, right? Mm-hmm. Everything, every step that she took was to make her daughter a better person, have a better life than what she currently had. And she went so far as to kill her husband and still lost her daughter. Yeah. You know? And so I can see how everything, if she looks back, like – you look back at the past, she was in my life then, but you're not now. And even though she's shown up at this particular moment, like Dolores didn't know she was coming. She hasn't seen her in all these years. She doesn't know how long she's going to be there. Right? Like, it's just, it's not a happy time and it may never be. I kind of wish at the end of the movie, they would have changed the color tone just a little bit. Right? Like after Dolores is kind of set free, she's not going to be, she's not going to prison for killing Vera. Her daughter is sort of back in her life, maybe right, but it's still kind of that blue, present day color tone, and they they could have gotten away with that a little bit. By that point in the movie, we didn't need to differentiate between present day and past. I think it was an artistic choice they did at the time just to do present and
0: future, yeah, or sorry, present and past, and stick with it. And then they didn't really. You know, they probably could have brightened it up, and maybe they even did at the end. You know, in yeah. that very that goodbye fairy scene or something. But
1: I didn't really. I mean, it didn't stand out that they did. But going back to that scene where her, the mirror, where she's looking and she sees the back of her head. I mean, like again, all these things are like a lot of good symbolism for repression and recovered memory. Yeah, and I feel like. Like, these are the moments, obviously, where she's sort of, like, realizing all the things, all of her past mistakes, and eventually turns around and goes to save her mom. Right. So. Yeah. Stylized, for sure. Taylor's right. This is a very stylized film.
0: Yeah. And when it comes to the other theme, you know, outside of repression, abuse, memory, feminism, right? Mm -hmm. So Dolores Claiborne has been cited. As a self consciously feminist film that, quote, combines the melodramatic impulse with the investigative structure of a noir crime thriller and a contemporary feminist consciousness. The film has been read as an example of maternal melodrama that features an idealized mother figure who sacrifices the needs of her own for others. In the book Screening Genders, one scholar considers Dolores Claiborne and Stage Door from 1937 to be the only, quote, truly feminist films made in Hollywood and that they don't cop out of
1: the end. Uh, what's the Bechdel test, right? Two women having a conversation and not conversation, about a man. To, yeah. But does this movie pass that? Do they have conversations that don't revolve or talk about a man? I think so. Yeah, because I mean, they have conversations that are not talking about her husband and Selena's father. Talk about you know China frogs or whatever the fuck, <laughs> China pigs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> An accident, Dolores. Yeah, could be a China pig's <laughs> best friend. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Britt Hayes writes of the main character
0: quote through Dolores King poignantly explores. The way the world often forces women into a series of compromises, in the way those small compromises have a way of stacking up to an imposing height, backing us into a corner until we have no choice but to become bitches. A woman, or a wife, a mother, is emotionally and physically abused to the point where she breaks and feels she has no other option than to become the bitch.
1: And I feel like the three main women in this movie wear that as a badge of honor, right? Right. And they all repeat that line. Sometimes being a bitch is the only thing a woman has left to hold on to. That is correct. And I think they firmly believe that. I was talking about this movie with someone else and they were like, I I don't like it when women are called bitches. And I was like, and I agree, you know, like I don't I don't think that's a, a good term to use when talking to women or about women, right? But I feel like sometimes it's okay if you want to call yourself a bitch or whatnot, like, good, wear it and and do it. Be a strong woman if you're going to use bitch in that particular term.
0: Yeah, I don't even know if that's the right word here. You know, I feel like it's just like you're
1: backed into a corner.
0: It's just called desperation. Yeah, for
1: sure. You know, and I think that's also a big theme in this movie, (laughs) desperation. Woman on the verge. I mean, for sure. But yeah, I, I feel like there's other moments in this movie that really show a lot of feminism on a really, um, like, on the nose kind of way. Like, where she's in the bank, like, trying to get her money, and she's really calling out sort of these, like, masochistic behaviors of the time. You know, she says, like, what would you have given me that money if I came in here as a woman? You know what Give me? me that bitchly check. That bitchly check. <laughs> that effing pig feed. So... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's there's very clear, like, moments of feminism in this movie. A lot of it has to do with Judy Parfit's character, too. Yeah. Like, like, she, for one, will stand up for whatever she wants. And, and she was going through very similar situations as Dolores. Maybe not quite as dire, but she had a very similar relationship, and she took care of it in her own way. Yeah. Cutting the brakes on her husband's car. My God. My goodness. Sometimes... A husband's brakes fail when he's driving back from his mistress. Well, Chris, do you have any fun facts for me about Dolores Claiborne? I do.
0: Okay, what are they? This film has been cited to be Kathy Bates' favorite movie role of her career. <laughs> I feel like we've talked about that. We might have. <laughs> Anyway, Christopher Plummer's character, Inspector John Mackey, sports a prominent scar on the bridge of his nose. According to the director, Taylor Hackford, he wanted Mackey to look disheveled and careworn. So he asked his costume designer to put him in the worst suits she could find, but without success. Plummer quietly approached Hackford and said, Taylor, it's impossible for me to look bad in a suit. <laughs> it's just the way I'm built. But let me do something that will change all that. I'll break my nose. Plummer took an eyebrow pencil and drew a line across the bridge of his nose and then shaded it to create an illusion of an ugly permanent scar. Upon seeing the result, Hackford was astounded by Plummer's transformed appearance. Quote, my desired image of Inspector John Maggie suddenly materialized before my eyes.
1: I got really excited while you were just saying that to me because I thought that Christopher Plummer went and broke He's his own nose for his a role. I know. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, commitment. Now I'm kind of less impressed with Christopher Plummer by drawing his own broken nose. Yeah, well... But also, stage magic. My God, it's impossible to make me look bad in a suit. I'm just built that way. Yeah, and I can't. I can't decide if I'm like really attracted to that level of confidence or really turned off by it. I don't know. What does that mean?
0: Broad shoulders, long neck. I don't. I don't know. Anyway, Judy Parfit was recommended for the role of Vera by director Taylor Hackford's wife. Helen Mirren. What?
1: Helen Mirren is married <laughs> to Taylor Hackford?
0: I believe so, according to this, or at least was.
1: Why has he never cast her in a movie? I don't know. the fuck? Because he's not a fucking... Nepotistic those... director? Yeah. Go do your own work, Helen. You're he's fine. Bitch and no bad land. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Francis Palmer, McDormand. <laughs> That's
1: right. Her husband's just like, hey, I'm making a movie. Well, you better put me in it. Right. You son of a bitch.
0: <laughs> no, I really love her. But um, Same. Yeah. So Helen Mirren, right? Parfit, who had largely confined her career to the stage, was virtually unknown to film audiences at the time, just like Kathy Bates from Misery. That's right. After she auditioned with Kathy Bates, Bates reportedly turned to Hackford and gasped, who was that? They agreed to cast Parfit on the spot. And rightfully so. Kathy Bates... ...is only 14 years older than Jennifer Jason Leigh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was thinking about this while we were watching it, and I'm so glad that it's a fun fact. Because we're in the middle of this movie, and I'm like, Kathy Bates is probably not that much older than Jennifer Jason Leigh. No, she looks older, right? She looked older when she was
0: younger, and Jennifer Jason Leigh looked younger when she was older.
1: Yes, Right. And also I feel like Kathy Bates got a lot of makeup to make she did. her look older she in really this movie. Yeah. You know? Because we keep forgetting. Like, and I think maybe we talked about this in Misery, but I feel like people always cast Kathy Bates as an older person than what she really is. Except
0: now they're casting her as younger because she's like seventy five. Right. And she looks like she's in her sixties.
1: That's right. I don't know. It just seemed kind of shocking to me. I was like, they cannot be that much different in age. And they are not, apparently. 14 years is nothing.
0: Now, do you remember, um, speaking of weird age differences, do you remember, um, did you ever watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade with Sean Connery and Harrison Ford? Mm -hmm. Where Sean Connery plays his father. Right. 11 years
1: older. Oh, my good Lord. Only 11 years. But again, Sean Connery is one of those people that I always think of as looking older, maybe distinguished. Well, they
0: just, they took off his toupee, you know, made him bald. And Man then look shorter. and you know, There yeah, it is. It. Boobby boobby. Daddy. <laughs> uh, lastly, Kathy Bates played Annie Wilkes in another Stephen King film, Misery, 1990 Shocker. In that film, actress Frances Sternhagen played Virginia, the wife of the sheriff investigating the disappearance of Paul Sheldon. Frances Sternhagen has also performed as Dolores Claiborne herself as she narrated the audiobook. This is true. You can download the audiobook right now, and it is Performed, narrated by Francis Sternhagen. I've listened. to misery. I it. know you would.
1: <gasps> Cause while watching this movie, I was like, I have not okay. I have not <laughs> seen this movie in about 20 years. I was
0: like, you must have actually read the book book
1: because I did uh, the audiobook. You would not have missed that if you knew that. So I was like thirteen years old-ish when I read Dolores Claiborne. And I loved the book so much. And then I I had a hardback edition of it. And I almost never had hardbacks when I was a kid because I just couldn't afford them. I bought used paperbacks. And I was a, like, a well-versed Stephen King fan by the time this came out. I finally read it. I loved it. I read that same hardback copy like two more times. But I loved Frances Sternigan so much in Misery and other things she's been in. Because recently we watched Raising Cain and she's great in that movie too. Now I want to listen to her read... Dolores Claiborne. I don't want to do this so bad, but I'm already in the middle of like two audiobooks. books. Oh, well, those are fun facts. I really enjoyed those, but we have some questions to ask about Dolores Claiborne. Like we do about every movie we cover on the film flamers. And we're going to start with, is Dolores Claiborne a horror film? You know, that's an interesting question. I think a lot of critics have called it a lot of different things. Obviously Roger
0: Ebert said it was a horror film. It's been called a drama. Uh, it's been called a thriller. It's been called horror and it's been called Gothic romance as we discussed. And even noir or feminist noir. And I think it's all of those things. And I think that's okay. I love things that genre bend. Yep. You know, and I think there is some horror in here. So at the very least, it's horror adjacent. I mean, the Saturn
1: Awards certainly agree with us. I would call it horror adjacent. It's also by Stephen King. (laughs) And I think that's the biggest reason. I think when you have name recognition like that, you can't help but sort of like loop things in to the horror genre when you have a name like Stephen King attached to it. And I feel like... Stephen King and his written work oftentimes straddles the line between horror and other genre. Like his written work is just as genre bending as some of the movies that are based on it. I was going to ask that next. I was going to ask, is
0: the novel more horror-esque than the movie?
1: No, I feel like the novel itself is more of a character study. Yeah,
0: right. right? And I think the movie is too, because, you know, you could easily make the intrigue of murder, you know, into – a very horrific tone Mm -hmm. in this. And it was much more of a bleak, sad tone about it, like an inevitability versus something that was supposed to be scary or shocking.
1: I feel like Dolores Claiborne was sort of a foreshadowing of, of the work that Stephen King would be doing much, much later in his career or like 30 years later or more. And that's not to say that he didn't write things very similar to Dolores Claiborne, like the Shawshank Redemption, um, like the novella is not a horror story and it's not a horror movie. Right. I think there are parts of it that you could say that. Right. But I I wouldn't necessarily call it horror. The horror of injustice. (laughs) I mean, it's real life horror is what it is. I mean, that's what this is. And that's, I mean, that's what he's doing now. Like we talked about on a previous episode, I think like he, he'll latch himself onto a character and just write whole novels about them. And I think that's a really good thing. However, this novel is kind of tied into another novel that he wrote called Gerald's Game. Like, there's a moment when Dolores Claiborne is killing her husband during the eclipse, and she has sort of this like premonition of seeing a woman chained to a bed, which is what's happening in Gerald's Game. An eclipse happens in Gerald's Game, and she sees Dolores Claiborne. It's a way to tie these two books that came out roughly around the same time together, and um, that. That novel itself, too, Gerald's Game, is another character study of a woman going through a very harrowing situation. Yeah, and they kind of make reference to that, like saying the next eclipse will, the next eclipse will be in nineteen ninety six or something like that. And I can't remember when Gerald's Game took place, but I mean, maybe they were referring to that. Hmm. So. Interesting. Uh, were you scared while watching Dolores Claiborne? No. Yeah, me either. Like, I, I don't think that it's a frightening film. I think there are some harrowing moments. The scene, the first scene that we get, the first flashback where she gets uh, abused by Joe is pretty fucking harrowing, right? And I feel like the next scariest moment would be the murder during the eclipse. And you're kind of like cheering her on at that moment. Yeah, I'm not, I was excited
0: and not even tense about that. I think no. it was more about that scene that you're talking about earlier.
1: Yeah. Uh, out of five stars, what would you
0: rate? Lewis Claiborne I give it a four star I feel like some of those uh, segues into the flashbacks can be really fucking jarring in some some cases Mm -hmm. regardless of how artistic it is as far as the language from the thousand foot view of this film which is masterful I feel like in the weeds it kind of fails a little bit with some of those cuts in a kind of you know a really bad way (laughs) to me very jarring and um, you know it took me out of it several times And then there's some other things that are a little masturbatory as well, some cuts, some transitions that they do, like the breaking glass and her reflection, like going down with the broken glass instead of actually being a reflection and like being really fucking on the nose, you know, taking itself way too seriously in a movie where you already expect it to kind of take itself as seriously as a car accident as it should, you know. But it's just a little over the top in some of those cases, and that's what I – uh, have a problem with, but it's still a four fucking star movie because we've got five star performances and we've got five star direction and it's a five star story. You know, it's a little bit of a wet Grinch salad, but, you know, sometimes we like that here at the Flim
1: Flamers. I mean, I certainly do. I give this movie four and a half stars. I really, really liked Dolores Claiborne. I liked it when I saw it. I've seen this movie several many times and I like it every time that I watch it. This has been the longest period of time I've gone without watching Doris Claiborne because there was a point in my life where I thought this was just like peak fucking cinema. You know, I was like, this is really good. I like the story because I like the novel and I like the character very, very much. And I feel like this is one of those rare instances where I like the character just as much in the movie as I do in the book. And I really held on to that when I was younger. I think some of the things that you just said are quite accurate, right? Like the one time in this movie that I kind of feel taken out of it is when she breaks that window and the <laughs> reflection is shown. And I was laughing at it out loud <laughs> while watching this movie. I was just like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. You know, I was like, why would you do that? But then like for the rest of the movie, the performances are so, so good. yeah. And like, I feel like the story as simple as it is, is incredibly intriguing. And even though you know what's going to happen, having seen the movie multiple times, it's still fun to watch. And it's fun to watch these characters interact with each other, whether it's Kathy Bates interacting with Christopher Plummer or with Jennifer Jason Leigh. I feel like all these actors work really, really well together and it creates something very, very special. And I am flabbergasted still that this movie was not even nominated for an Academy Award. I think so, too. So, right. I feel like if you're going to look back at some of the movies that were based on Stephen King novels, the ones that going to the ones that are going to stand the test of time, or look back on with most reverence, or the most success as film, are some of his non horror work. Yeah, that's no shade to some of the horror movies that have been created. I feel like lately, like it is a very very good movie and would stand right up there with things like Dolores Claiborne or The Shawshank Redemption. But like facts are facts, America and Stephen King's dramatic work, like the Green Mile, even though I kind of don't really care for that movie. Shawshank Redemption, Dolores Claiborne are really where he succeeds in film. So finally, who's the hottest guy in Dolores Claiborne? (laughs) Right. <laughs>
0: um uh, David Strathern. Mm-hmm. I guess. John C. Riley a little bit. He was so endearing. He's super endearing and cute John C. Riley. Fuck it. John C. fucking Riley.
1: John C. Riley. Okay. David Strathairn for me, even though his character is beyond. Reprehensible.
0: I remember like, the beginning of the movie; he was kind of endearing a little bit. He was with his daughter and everything else, and at the end with his daughter, I was like, "Fuck this guy!" I know. I really so he's not another movie at all, and he has a very like we didn't even talk about him really as for his performance because he has a, a thankless job to do,
1: and he did it. Yeah, he really did. I mean, he plays a villain really, really well. There are some moments, you know, like right before he dies in the movie, actually, where he's being almost fucking decent yeah. to her, but it's only because he's drunk. You know, and while his character is completely awful, I feel like David Strathairn has kind of a look about him, right? Like, it's not quite flashy, but he's not unattractive. Yeah. You know, he's a look about him for sure. And Christopher Plummer apparently looks really good in a suit, but I really didn't have it for Captain Von Trapp and I don't have it for Detective Mackey. So... Mm -hmm. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Dolores Claiborne. As always, we want to know what you think about this movie and our discussion about it. Find us at The Film Flamers on various social media outlets, including X, formerly known as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads.
0: You can email us at TiredQueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline
1: at 972 972- Six 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 seven seven three three.
0: Do you take umbrage with our Dolores Laybourne
1: reviews? Call our hotline and make us into dirty birds. Oh. be the grand poobah of my upper butt <laughs> <laughs> That also wraps up our Stephen King, Kathy Bates content this month. However, we have one more episode coming out for you this month, and that is our year wrap-up. We are sending 2023 up in flames as we talk about the best, the worst, and maybe in-betweens of horror last year. That's right.
0: And uh, coming up on Patreon, I believe the polls have spoken, although the could change, is looking more and more like uh, Running Man is overtaking Dreamcatcher for a Stephen King adaption.
1: That's right. If you want to hear Dreamcatcher instead of The Running Manor, maybe vote for something else in that poll. Head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers, vote in that poll, get all of our bonus content, join the family. We have a whole chat going on over there and people are just conversing all over the place. That's right. Well, Robert. Yes, Chris. I need to go find a
0: nice well to fall in so I can get some Sweet dreams. sweet dreams Well, well, well
1: <laughs> Sometimes An accident Could be an unhappy woman's Sweet dreams <laughs> I like that Let's do that one instead
0: <laughs>